I'm Jay Miller, and today on George Fox Talks, I'm joined by Jonathan Katab. We'll be talking about the war in Gaza, the reality of things on the ground, and if peace is possible. Hi, I'm Jay Miller, and today, on today's episode of George Fox Talks, I'm joined by Jonathan Katab, a Palestinian human rights lawyer and a Christian pacifist. Um, I'll just read a little bit of Jonathan's bio before we get into our episode for today. Jonathan is the executive director of Friends of Sabeel North America. Um, you can find more information about that organization at fosna.org. And in addition to being the co-founder of Sabeel Jerusalem, Jonathan is a co-founder of the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq, as well as Nonviolence International. He's a well-known international human rights attorney, and he practices in the U.S., Palestine, and in Israel. Um, we're recording this episode on February 13th um, in the midst of the fourth month of Israel's war in Gaza. Um, so we'll be talking more about that war um, and what the possible solutions are um, that Jonathan's been thinking about for a very long time. Um, we're going to start with, um, before getting to Jonathan's ideas about what we'll talk about as the one state solution. Um, as I was getting into the idea of a one state um, solution, as opposed to a two state solution, I was going back through and I found an essay in the New York times from 1999 by the prominent Palestinian intellectual, public intellectual Edward Said. And I was struck by his concluding paragraph. So I just thought in that spirit, I wanted to read it, Jonathan, and kind of hear what you think about it, your response. So in 1999, Said wrote in regards to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the alternatives are unpleasantly simple. Either the war continues or a way out based on peace and equality is actively sought despite the many obstacles. Once we grant that Palestinians and Israelis are there to stay, then the decent conclusion has to be the need for peaceful coexistence and genuine reconciliation, real self-determination. Unfortunately, injustice and belligerence don't diminish by themselves. They have to be attacked by all concerned. Jonathan, as an advocate today of the one-state solution, um, how do Saeed's words from 25 years ago land with you? Well, <clears throat> of course he's right. Uh, the problem is uh, with those who think that only one side is correct. That, uh, for example, that uh, this is a Jewish state. Uh, Balfour, God, uh, the UN, history, whatever, they won, they're powerful. It should be for the Jews. Let the Palestinians go elsewhere. Or there's no such thing as Palestinians. They don't count. Uh, they, they will be tolerated only to the extent that they are willing to accept that uh, they have no place here. And they, accept, they exist here at the mercy of uh, the, the Jewish state. Or those who say, uh, this is just settler colonialism. These are all foreigners. Palestine, Arabia, Palestine for the Arabs. Who are these people coming here and taking our land? Uh, let them go back to wherever they came from. Uh, this is our land. Either of these two uh, positions requires that you annihilate your opponent or delegitimize them or uh, uh, they don't count. They're not serious. They're not real. Uh, and, and if you believe in one of these two uh, doctrines, uh, you, you, you'll keep fighting forever because the Palestinians are going nowhere mm -hmm. and neither are the Israeli Jews. You need to find some formula for them to live together. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that they are the same. Uh, there is no right. symmetry here. There's no equality. There's just a reality. Mm -hmm. In the land today, known as the Holy Land, Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to call it, there's two groups. One group has all the power and the other has none, but neither of them is going away. Mm -hmm. They need to live together, yes. Yes, I think for Saeed, you know, who um, I think identified as an atheist or an agnostic, you know, he was very much grounded his analysis and his desire for a one-state solution in the material realities. There are two people here. We functionally have one state already, 
what kind of state is it going to be if we recognize this current state isn't viable um, or isn't just. Um, you come at it from a different perspective as slightly different in that while you have that same material analysis, you also identify as a Christian pacifist and a Palestinian Christian Correct. informs your analysis Correct. Um, and your work. Um, you're the author of two recent books. One of them is along these lines, a memoir called The Truth Shall Set You Free. Another is um, a book arguing for a one, the one-state solution, and the book is titled Beyond the Two-State Solution. Correct. Um, we're going to finish the conversation talking about what it would look like to go beyond the two-state solution, but I wonder if first we could lean into that more autobiographical aspect of your work and just ask for you, what's the significance of being a Palestinian Christian, and how, as a Palestinian Christian, um, did you come to become a Christian pacifist committed to nonviolent um, solutions? Well, uh, maybe you don't know because the vast majority of Palestinian Christians are pacifists. Mm. The way we read our scripture, uh, we're required to love our enemies, not kill them. Uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is how we read scripture. Unlike the majority of Christians in most countries since Constantine, who always found some kind of excuse to justify war, uh, Palestinian Christians, most of them say, no, if, if you're a real Christian, if you take Christ seriously, you must find a different way to deal with reality. You cannot allow the state, your own state, to become your God. You must always insist that your allegiance is uh, to, to, to Jesus, to the kingdom of God, not to an earthly kingdom. Even though you belong, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Uh, we can be very patriotic and very committed to our national group or tribe. Uh, but if we are serious about being Christian, uh, we have to find ways to do it non-violently, not by killing and destroying and eliminating our enemy, uh, however terrible they are. We must find a different way to work for justice other than guns and bombs. So you feel like that kind of Christian pacifism has always been a part of your understanding of the faith? Always. Um, I guess I want to ask, um, given the recent events in Israel and Palestine, the Hamas attack on October 7th and um, Israel's kind of intensifying occupation of Gaza, um, now around, I think, close to 30,000 sort of Palestinians killed. I know that's been hard for the peace movement based on my reading in Israel and Palestine. Um, can you give me a sense of today um, where the peace movement stands um, and what it's been like for you as a longstanding active peacemaker in the region to kind of experience the past few months? Well... <sighs> It's true that the current events sort of uh, solidify uh, the, the, the tribal, the nationalist, the antagonism, the, the hatred mm -hmm. uh, of, of, of both groups. But uh, at a deeper level, it actually proves the truth of our position. Namely, violence is never the answer. Mm -hmm. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how terribly you can crush your opponent, you will never obtain security except through peace. You must address the needs and the interests and the desires of both groups if you have any chance of succeeding. You see, the, the lie behind most war mongers is... Violence is the answer. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, you double down and you hit them harder next time and they will learn. Somehow they will be deterred. Somehow they will be frightened. Somehow they will never dare uh, to, to, to uh, fight us again because we will crush them so terribly. The truth is, the harder you crush them, uh, the more determined they will be to come back and seek revenge and seek to destroy you. Uh, I don't think 
the balance of power between Israel and the Palestinians has ever been greater than it was uh, between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza. They had them totally mm-hmm. trapped in, in a very small area uh, where they were being under 24-7 surveillance, where they were being occasionally bombed, where they couldn't get anything in or out of Gaza, any people or any goods or anything. They really had them under their thumb. And they were squeezing. It was so terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, life was impossible. And then all of a sudden, on October 7, they broke out of that jail in, 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 in a very violent and horrible way. They killed over 300 Israeli soldiers and they captured uh, Israeli military installations, several bases, uh, and, and they captured some soldiers to trade them for prisoners, but they also attacked civilians, mm-hmm. which I, you know, it's clearly wrong and shouldn't be done. Uh, but uh, they totally destroyed the Israeli security theory that somehow through violence and power, and technological superiority and massive uh, bombardment, uh, we can keep the Palestinians down. You can't. You can't. Right, and uh, I think this really speaks to I think you know some some of the issues around this war. Um, in that I th- you know so on October seventh, twelve hundred Israelis are killed, most of them civilians. Um, the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Um, and this sort of becomes Israel's sort of legitimating sort of uh, reason for their subsequent attack on Gaza. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric around this is kind of our September 11th, which I think for, as from an American perspective, I think that's kind of an ominous thing to evoke, <laughs> given you know the consequences of Americans sort of long wars in response to that. Um, and, and indeed, I think it has been ominous. Um, what do you think of the kind of theory, my kind of sense has been, I think we would agree that this effort to sort of wipe out Hamas with this kind of widespread sort of bombing campaign would seem to only kind of, you know, give Hamas more fuel for its kind of rationale. Yes. Um, It's going to, for recruiting more young men to Hamas. Yeah. Um, Do you think that's the right analysis that that will be the consequence? People have to understand Hamas is not just a military uh, operation also has its political, ideological, and civil components. It's an idea. And of course, it stands for resistance to Israel, but it also stands for one particular ideology of how society needs to be run. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't accept that ideology, but I don't demonize them either. Just like I don't like Likud or their theory or their... Mm-hmm philosophy or their charter uh, or the Israeli right-wing parties or, for that matter, MAGA and some of the right-wing parties in the United States. But you cannot demonize them and say they are utter evil and therefore anything I can do to destroy and eliminate them is allowed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if it were possible, uh, you cannot destroy an idea. You can only... Uh, try to diminish it. You can try to uh, convince people to move away from it. Uh, You can only negotiate with it. You can only reach some kind of uh, equilibrium uh, with it. Vote them out of power, uh, but not really kill everything that's called Hamas or that's related to Hamas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea of not demonizing your opponent um, which I think is so hard to do because ultimately your critique is both, you're making a critique, I believe, of both Israeli Zionist nationalism and Palestinian nationalism. I mean, and the way those have failed to bring peace for all the people living in Israel-Palestine. I think that's a fair correct um, representation of kind of your thought on this. Um, without pretending that they are in any way equal of course. or parallel, without symmetry, but basically, yes, both of these ideologies have failed to deliver the goods yeah. to their people. You talk about always being a Christian pacifist, that kind of always being your orientation. And I relate to that too as kind of a lifelong Quaker myself. But I know from my own experience that's one thing to have an intellectual commitment 
um, or maybe a theological commitment to pacifism and to not demonizing my enemy or people I disagree with or politics that I disagree with. By no, it's much harder, you know, to kind of know inwardly what to do with that anger yeah. or what to do with that concern for justice. So can you say more about is on your own journey as you've worked on these issues for a long time, um, how you kind of have worked with that yeah well it's very clear we must be uh we must not confuse pacifism with passivity right uh nonviolence uh, actually requires a lot more effort a lot more creativity a lot more discipline and a lot more sacrifice than armed struggle you really must work at it and one of the ways I personally worked at it was uh, through human rights. Mm. Uh, I helped set up Al-Haq, the first human rights organization, tried to document the violations that were taking place, tried to use international law uh, to try to bring Israelis to see that what they were doing was so contrary to even the principles of Judaism. Uh, and certainly to international law and universal values. Uh, I try to understand Israelis mm -hmm. and what they are going through and what they went through. E even though Palestinians were not responsible for the evils of Western Christian anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews, we have been forced to pay the price mm -hmm. for the Holocaust and for the Christian... Uh, anti-Semitism uh, in the West. Uh, so for me, to fight for Palestinian rights, to fight against the injustices of the oppression, of the occupation, of the apartheid regime, of Jewish supremacy, laws that promote Jews at the expense of non-Jews, their takeover of our lands, uh, for me to do that was, was, was an absolute necessity. Uh, but I also realized I needed to find ways to do it non-violently. Mm -hmm. Armed struggle was not going to help. It only justifies, legitimizes, and perpetuates the, the, the traumas uh, and, and, and the pain that, that has led to the creation of Zionism and the State of Israel in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that may be a good place to start to think about um, questions about a two-state solution versus a one-state solution. Yes. So a, a lot of your work has been to kind of, how do we resolve this conflict? One of the most common proposals, we hear this a lot in the news today, politicians are evoking, we need a two-state solution um, for after this war ends. Um can you talk about your relationship with the two-state solution and why you think we need to move beyond it now? Yes. Uh, the the two-state solution, uh, actually, it made a lot of sense right after 67. Mm -hmm. Because when Israel attacked and took over the West Bank and the Gaza and Sinai, they'll tell you it was pre preemptive defense. We knew they were going to hit us, so we attacked them first. Israel said we didn't want this war. It was forced upon us. We have no ambitions. We have no interests in taking this land. So, so many people said, okay, then why don't you give it back? Why don't we create a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza with maybe a corridor between them? Uh, and, and so you give him land in return for peace. We give you a Palestinian state here, and in return you basically give up your claim to 78% of Palestine, which will be Israel. And that solution, even though it had some problems with it, made a lot of sense. It was a pragmatic compromise. And, and I was one who worked very hard to achieve it mm -hmm. because I felt we can never have absolute justice. Uh, the Jews want a Jewish state, as Jewish as France is French. Uh, even though I have problems with that, but that's what they want. And we Palestinians want a state. We want a Palestinian state. 
So maybe that two-state solution makes a lot of sense. And for many years, I and a lot of good people worked on that basis. International law was on our side because Israel was not allowed to annex those territories and make them part of Israel, even though they tried and they annexed Jerusalem and the Golan and other places. Uh, but we thought that the two-state solution makes sense as a pragmatic compromise. The problem is the Israelis started setting up in that small 22% of Palestine Jewish settlements that were only for Jews. And they started connecting them with a network of roads that only served Jews. And they started expanding them and taking more and more land, making them part of the settlements and also part of Israel. Mm -hmm. So after a while, I had to admit to myself that the two-state solution is no longer possible. There's about 700,000 Jewish Israelis living in those settlements and living as if they are part of Israel. They have different laws, different courts, a different health system, different educational, social welfare system, uh, different roads that serve them alone. Uh, and But they are not living there as equal with the Palestinians. They're living as lords and masters mm -hmm. controlling the lives of Palestinians. And the Palestinians were in, uh, living in more and more shrinking areas that were constantly being uh, even further subdivided. So at some point you have to say, uh, this egg has been scrambled so much, it's an omelet, it's no longer an egg. You cannot separate it anymore. Uh, to, to have a two-state solution, you have to get rid of seven or 800,000 Jewish settlers and move them back to Israel, uh, which nobody is actually thinking uh, is possible. Right. So the two, so if the two-state solution is not possible, then we're back to the drawing boards, dealing with the reality. And the reality is there's two groups living in the land of Israel, Palestine, the Holy Land, whatever you want to call it. There's about 7 million Jews living there. So there's no way it's going to be an Arab state. We can no longer talk about Palestine, Arabia, when the people living there, half of them are not Arab. Mm -hmm. And they're going nowhere. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, you can no longer talk about a Jewish state there. Because half the people living there, about 7 million, are not Jews. And they're going nowhere. You can't get rid of them. So there's only one state there. The question is, what kind of state is it? Is it a state of equality or is it a state of apartheid, rule and control by one group over another? Is it a state where the same law applies to everybody or is it a state which fundamentally serves Jews and views non-Jews as a hostile foreign uh, enemy? I wonder if um, we could talk a little about then what the one-state solution would look like. Um, you know, Saeed was proposing this 25 years ago, and I I don't get the sense, I don't know the history as well as you, that's kind of what I want to ask about, but I don't get the sense that this is Saeed's idea, right? Could you say, I think it's fair to say the two-state solution has been the mainstream kind of consensus for some time. Since 67, Since 67 or shortly right. after 67, that was the consensus, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's still reapprised. Um, can you tell us a little bit before we, as a way of maybe introducing what the idea of the one-state solution is more more concretely, um, in some ways it's straightforward to think about, but like what's the history of that idea? Because it's been a little more marginal. Well, is that uh, the true? idea actually started even before 67. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the PLO, for example, always believed in one state, secular democratic state in all of Palestine. Hmm. That's the Palestinian Liberation the Palestinian Organization. Liberation Organization. But we were told, don't say that. Hmm. 
The minute you say secular democratic state, it means you don't want a Jewish state. It means you want to destroy Israel. It means you're almost like Hitler. So it was actually beaten out of us. Don't use one state language. Don't say from the river to the sea, because that means you don't accept a Jewish state. E even now, uh, people who say one state from the river to the sea, uh, they get attacked as being anti-Semitic. <laughs> Unless you are Net Netanyahu, who says from the river to the sea, this is only one place. Mm. And it's all ours. <laughs> so the unity of the whole of Palestine as one place that's important and near and dear to Palestinian Arabs and to Israeli Jews uh, is something that maybe we can all agree on. The question is, what kind of state do you have? Is it an exclusive state that serves one group at the expense of the other? Or is it a state that we can both share and belong to and feel that we love and that we have rights there, uh, but not exclusive rights, because there's somebody else who also loves this land as much as we do. Yeah, can you get a little more into the detail? In your book, Beyond the Two-State Solution, you lay out in detail what this yes. would look like. Can you say a little, obviously this could be a very long conversation, but could you say a little bit more about like your key ideas of what it would take, what kind of polity, what kind of political mechanisms, culture, yeah would it take for a one-state solution to really work so that it isn't an eliminativist kind of vision yeah. of the state, where it can truly just be a, a state where Palestinians are fully citizens along with Israelis? Yeah. Uh, actually, I would urge any of our readers to read uh, the book Beyond the Two-State Solution. In fact, you can download it for free from the website of nonviolenceinternational.net. Uh, if you don't want to pay for it, you can download it for free in Arabic, English, or Hebrew. Or Spanish, actually. It's been translated. Wonderful. The, the idea is, is based on really understanding both groups. What is it that Palestinians want? They want freedom. They want self-determination. They want equality. They want the right of return. Uh, they want to live in a, in, in a state that allows them to live and thrive and be proud of their identity, uh, of who they are. And if they can get all these things without having a Palestinian state, uh, if they can get those things without being exclusively a Palestinian state, I think most Palestinians would go for it. And by the same token, I asked many of my Jewish and Israeli friends, why do you want a Jewish state? What's special about having your own state? Well, we want this, we want that. We want to be able to have the right of return. We want to be able to defend ourselves. We want to have a striving, uh, a place where we can thrive and where we can live in security. I said, well, maybe... How about a state that can give you all those things and be a center of Jewish life and run on a Jewish calendar and all these things, but it's not exclusively Jewish because there's already people living there who can live with you in equality. Uh, then you'll live in security because nobody is out to try and kill you because you can live in security. So I tried to map out in, in practical detail, how such a society can run. How can it provide security to Jewish Israelis? How can it provide freedom of religion and freedom from religion for Jews as well as for Arabs, whether they're Christian or Muslim? or mm -hmm. uh, Because even in Israel, there isn't much religious freedom for reform and conservative Jews. It's only Orthodox Jews that have a monopoly in personal status matters. So can we have a state that recognizes and allows uh, both groups to live 
and to thrive regardless of who is 60% and who is 40%. Can we create a structure and a constitution and uh, institutions that will defend you and your community as an individual and as a minority, regardless of who happens to have 51% of the vote. You see, democracy can't be 51% dictating and oppressing and suppressing the 49%. You need to defend and you need to recognize all the stockholders. Uh, if you say uh, this is a Christian country, what about non-Christians? This is a white country, well, what about non-whites? Uh, can we uh, deny them the vote? Can we throw them out of the country? Can we uh, totally dismiss them or criminalize them or disenfranchise them? Or is there a constitution that protects them, even if they are not the majority? Mm -hmm. A constitution that recognizes everybody and not just whoever won the last election a country that belongs to all of us, not just to one group at the expense of others. So that's, that's the kind of uh, ideas that I put in this book, Beyond the Two-State Solution. Yeah, thank you. I, I have so many questions. I, I find it really compelling. I think I first started reading about this. I, I don't know if you have a sense of that, even though it hasn't been the dominant sort of model. Do you feel like the two-state solution has been, or not the one-state solution has been gaining ground as a possibility for, I, I think I first became aware of it, you know, I think Peter Beinert has sort of promoted this. He's a Jewish intellectual. Um, I've heard him talk about it. I've heard you talk about it. Do you think this is an idea that's gaining ground um, or becoming more talked about? I think it's gaining ground because people who know the reality on the ground realize mm. that the two-state solution is no longer possible. Wish it were. Mm -hmm. If it were possible, go for it. Mm -hmm. But the other side has systematically undermined it. If they ever really believed in it, which I doubt now, uh, they've certainly worked to make it impossible. Through I, the kind of the settlements is really the exactly. crux here. Because Saeed's writing about settlements 25 years ago yeah. and saying we can't do this 25 yeah. years ago, yeah. and they've only increased. And, and Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, actually said, the reason I wanted Hamas to rule Gaza is to prevent a two-state solution, mm -hmm. is to prevent a Palestinian state from ever being possible. This way I can divide them and keep them separate and keep them both under our control. Because if you don't, if you allow the Palestinian Authority to speak for West Bank and Gaza, to speak in one voice for all the Palestinians, then, uh, then you will have a Palestinian state, which I will not allow. Yeah, as I've thought about that dynamic you're describing of the way uh, Netanyahu and his party have kind of cultivated or sustained or allowed Hamas to sort of flourish. I mean, to me, it seems like it's almost like a, a form of collusion almost between these two kind of nationalisms. Um, again, like asymmetrical as always, yeah. that's a key thing to keep in mind. But um, there's a sense in that they've worked symbiotically in a yes, way. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's a strange kind of collusion. Uh, let's, let's keep it at the level of total extremism. Let's not allow moderates or anybody in the middle to survive. This way we can always point to them and say, look how extreme they are. Mm -hmm. How can you make peace with them? Mm -hmm. They're not even united. Abbas doesn't speak for everybody. Uh, there is nobody to right. talk to because we made sure that there is nobody there to talk right. to. And therefore don't expect us to make peace because there's nobody to make peace with so we can continue the status quo. That's why many people today who talk about two states are not really being sincere. They really know there's not going to be two states, but it's a way of avoiding talking about the reality on the ground. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what I find appealing about the one state sort of solution you're proposing is that it's radical, both in the sense of it's politically ambitious, but also in the sense that radical means getting to the root of something. You're getting to the root of the conflict here um, and and the problems. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little about like kind of what the obstacles are. Um, And I think kind of around the idea of leadership, my sense, and again, as someone who doesn't know a lot about this, I'm really anxious to kind of hear your thought. Um, you know, whenever, however, this war hopefully ends, um, when it does and when there becomes serious talks about solutions, um, that are hopefully along the lines of sort of statehood and not, um, continuing occupation or these sorts of things, um, you're going to have two groups, Palestinians and Israelis, who have experienced just enormous trauma recently. Again, not symmetrical trauma, as we're saying, but both are very traumatized, very polarized. You know, in in Israel, the language is like getting sober, right? And that you're no longer thinking about peace as a possibility. Um, So much devastation in Gaza. Um, To work with those traumatized communities, to me, it seems like you need transformational political leadership. Mm Um, as we've talked about, the current leadership, whether it's um, Netanyahu and Likud or Hamas or the PLO, um, it doesn't seem like there's that dynamic, transformative political leadership that might be needed. Um, I'm curious what you think of that. If you know, if that were kind of the pushback or that were the critique, how would you respond to that? Of like, well, this sounds great, Jonathan, but where's the leadership that's going to make this happen? Well. Clearly, there is no leadership right now on either side that will make this happen. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Yes, it is a question of leadership, but it's beyond that. At a fundamental level, the biggest obstacles are uh, really very deep. And I'll tell you, for the Palestinians, it's not easy because this is all our land and who are these people coming and taking it from us. For us to share our land with them on the basis of equality, full equality, is a huge step. For the Israelis also, there are at least two major obstacles that need to be addressed. Uh, The first uh, is, is the tremendous disparity of power. We have all the power. Why should we? Give up any of it. We are in control. You know, anybody who is in a position of privilege, you talk to them about equality and you're taking something away from them. Uh, if, if I'm a slaveholder and somebody comes and talks about equality, what do you mean? You're taking my property. I paid for this man or woman and their children. Mm-hmm. They belong to me. Equality sounds like oppression. You're taking something away from me. So we have to mm. deal with this disparity of power. I right. have all the power. Right. Why should I give up any of it? I won. I am in charge. I hold all the cards. So that's the first obstacle. Uh, you know, a total negation, not accepting Palestinian rights. But the second is the trauma what I call the Holocaust syndrome. Uh, These are people who have suffered a lot. And uh, Zionism comes and tells them, you can't trust anybody but yourself. In a sense, Hitler was right. Blood and iron is all it takes. Don't think about international law. Don't think about public opinion. Don't think about universal principles. Where were they? when we were being driven to the ovens. We can't trust anybody other than our own power. Uh, And uh, we have a lot of power and we amass a lot of power, but it's never enough. We need more. And then something like October 7 happens and my God, you know, we need even more Mm -hmm. power. Uh, So we need to somehow overcome that trauma, what I call the Holocaust syndrome. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need healing from that trauma. Unfortunately, until 
Jewish Israelis are healed from the trauma of the Holocaust and of anti-Semitism and uh, it's going to be hard for them to make peace with the Palestinians. Yeah, and again, I come back to that kind of question of leadership. Of I guess for you, if if you kind of recognize the leadership is a problem right now, um, and again, it's we're kind of at a place where I think it, it's hard to know what the next day will bring, right? In terms of like when 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 we might have a ceasefire, when we might start to think about like what's next after we get out of um, the kind of basic conflict. Um, do you think of the one state solution as um, something now where you're wanting to kind of advocate kind of practical steps toward that? Or do you think it's more a matter of just beginning to imagine that possibility and getting people to think along those lines? No, there are some very practical steps that one can take. Mm. Uh, I, I think the intellectual task of proving that it's possible is important also. Mm -hmm. But there are practical steps. For example, uh, you have 800,000 Jewish settlers living in the West Bank. Uh, so uh, how about making sure that they live under the same rules that the Palestinians are? Oh, you say, but these rules are terrible. Well, improve the rules. Well, these services are not good enough. We want Israeli standards. Mm -hmm. Well, improve the services for everybody. Mm -hmm. Stop this hafrada, this separation. Allow people to move around. Permit people to move back and forth. Allow Palestinians to move from Gaza to the West Bank and from the West Bank to Gaza and to Jerusalem and to Nazareth. If you want as Jews to live anywhere in Palestine, why don't you allow Palestinians also to live anywhere? Uh, they have their property. Why don't you allow them to share it? Uh, this system of creating five different categories, five different set of laws, one for the people of Gaza, one for the people of the West Bank, mm -hmm. one for the Palestinians in Jerusalem, and yet another one for the Palestinians who are Israeli citizens uh, as a way of fragmentation. Uh, let's break through that. Let's allow Palestinians to meet and deal and talk and visit and marry from each other. They are one people. Mm -hmm. How can you have laws that prevent them from marrying and living together if they are Israelis as opposed to West Bankers? Mm -hmm. They actually have laws that you can't do that. Why not? We are families. We are related. We, are, uh, we have the same culture. So there are many steps that you can take short of creating one state solution to remove inequality, mm -hmm. to increase possibilities of interaction, to really recognize and deal with the hopes and the fears and the expectations of both sides. Uh, ultimately, yes, you will need to have a, a state that allows equality. Mm -hmm. You need to allow Palestinian right of return, for example. Uh, you can't just, you can't actually try to kick out more Palestinians, which is what they are trying to do in Rafah now, mm -hmm. to push out another million Palestinians out into the desert. Uh, you have to allow people to thrive and live and prosper and trade and move and travel. Uh, there's so many things you can do to improve the current situation in the direction of equality, in the direction of more rights and freedom, in the direction of uh, democracy mm -hmm. and human rights and freedom of movement and an open society. And you work towards reconciliation and you work towards removing the bitterness and the hatred and you reduce the, the constant oppression, you can eliminate, eliminate administrative detention where you can just arrest somebody for no reason. Mm -hmm. You can eliminate military courts for minors and children, make them all subject to civil law, not military law. 
You can eliminate the restrictions under military law that prevent people from building and on their own land, on their own private land, and planting their own private land. There are so many steps that you can take to reduce the the sting and the bitterness of oppressive. Uh, racist apartheid make things a little bit more like uh, equal mm-hmm. uh, these are very specific concrete steps in the right direction you don't have to wait till everything is perfect you can move towards it in small incremental steps do you think that kind of movement towards it takes place at the level of civil society so relationships between israelis and you know ordinary Israelis and Palestinians today, do you see that more as like, again, the kind of at the political level? Because again, I guess I wonder, do we, do we see the current Israeli government making any of these changes? None. And, and so if if that's not the case, uh, it seems likely that possibly Netanyahu doesn't survive. Like at some point, he's kind of surviving by maintaining this war and his grip on the war. Um, my understanding is that there's also a lot of dissatisfaction with it, Netanyahu in Israel. So if we think after Netanyahu, do you see prospects from Israeli leadership that's more open to those kind of changes? I'm, I'm actually worried that Netanyahu will leave and will be replaced only by people who are even more to his right, mm. more fascist, more uh, less willing to deal with Palestinians. And the question is not just meeting and talking and dealing right. with each other, even though that's necessary. Because if you do it without addressing the basic questions, that becomes normalization. Uh, we need things that really challenge the oppressive structures. Lift the siege of Gaza. Gaza has been under siege for 16 years. Mm-hmm. If this war is o- over without lifting the siege of Gaza, without allowing free movement in and out of Gaza, then we've gained nothing, absolutely nothing. We are perpetuating the existing situation, only making it worse. Which is why, you know, we call for a ceasefire now. Now, I think that's legitimate because you see two people fighting in the street or in the school playground. The first thing you do is stop. Stop hitting each other. Let's cease fire now. But that's not enough. Then you move to, okay, who started this? What is this about? Uh, What's going on here? How can we address the basic issues? So you need to move towards peaceful solutions. It's not enough to just say ceasefire. But it's absolutely essential. Of course. You start with a ceasefire now. Right. You allow food and water and medicine to come in. You allow people to build instead of controlling them tightly as you did before October 7. Mm -hmm. Allow people to live. Allow people to thrive. uh, Allow institutions to be built. Not not destroy. I mean, Israel is systematically destroying all buildings, Mm -hmm. all universities, all hospitals, 36 hospitals are systematically destroyed. How can you have a society when you've destroyed all their hospitals, all their libraries, all their bakeries, all their museums, uh, courthouses, never mind structures of residences and buildings. When you go systematically and destroy them all, this is horrible. This is genocide taking place. This is making Gaza unlivable which is the definition, by the way, of genocide. Well, when you go against an entire people, whether it's through killing them or making conditions unlivable Mm -hmm. for them in whole or in part, that is genocide. Uh, Of course, if I can talk about that for a second, the definition of genocide under international law usually would be very hard to apply because it requires intent. Killing and making things unlivable may be wrong, but it's not genocidal unless it is done with the intent 
Usually intent is very difficult to prove, except in this case. In this case, Israeli leaders, from the Israeli president to the prime minister, to the defense minister, to the chief of staff, all of them have made clearly genocidal statements. We need to totally eliminate them, eradicate them. Uh, they are human animals. They mm -hmm. are not even human beings. We'll treat them as such. We'll cut off all their water and food. You know, sometimes they will tell you, oh, we're only talking about Hamas. Well, when you cut off all water and all food, clearly right. you're cutting it on the whole entire population. When the president of Israel says there are no innocents in Gaza, everybody is responsible. Right. And when you look at the victims, the majority of them are children and women. But by definition, I mean, there's more than half of the people in Gaza are, are minors. Mm -hmm. There's six. There's sixty thousand pregnant women in Gaza now. So with no water, with no sanitation, with no equipment, with no sorry sanitary uh, utensils, and and many of them end up with C sections without anesthesia. Mm -hmm. There have been over a thousand amputations of children, many of them without anesthesia. If you can do that and say this is not genocide, this is just, you know, we're trying to eliminate Hamas. Uh, it's really a horrible situation. Yeah, I agree with you. Obviously, the kind of the Israeli kind of position or uh, pro-Israel kind of voices will say like, well, Hamas has used human shields or civil infrastructure to kind of mask its sort of um, its sort of operations. And so it bears the responsibility. But I think to me, that seems like a really too easy a washing of one's hands yeah. to just pin all of this kind of death um, on Hamas. Um, we've talked a little about the, the challenges to leadership on the Israeli side. Do you see prospects for um, meaningful Palestinian leadership? <laughs> Um, coming forward to advocate for these kind of, um, the things you're proposing? Only if you allow elections. With elections, you get new leaders. But if you're not allowing elections, and if the person who's elected you don't like, mm -hmm. you put them in jail, or you assassinate them, or you kill them, uh, or you deport them. Uh, how is leadership going to be created except through a democratic process? Mm -hmm. Even before October 7th, the joke was that if elections are held, Hamas would lose in Gaza and Fatah would lose in the West Bank mm -hmm. because its leaders have not done a good job. Right. Instead, a new generation of leaders will arise that maybe neither Hamas nor the PA would like, but that reflects the desires of the people. Uh, because Palestinians are human beings like everybody else. They want to live. They want their children to go to school. They want a better life for themselves and for their children. Uh, why wouldn't they want that? I mean, they're not racially or genetically uh, evil uh, and, 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 and want hatred. And, and it's not something that you teach in school. It's something that you teach in life. People in Gaza who have gone under this massive bombardment, you think they're going to require somebody to teach them in school not to like Israel and Israelis? No, they, they've experienced it on their bodies. They know what it's like. They'll need to be taught the opposite. They'll need to be taught that despite what happened, there is a possibility of living together even with these people. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the Israeli side of things, the Palestinian side of things. I want to finish by talking about the American side of things, ah, yes, briefly, uh, which I know is hard. But um, you know, we're kind of in an American context here, um, an American Christian context. Um, I'm curious. You know, my sense is that one of the challenges here is that this is a an international kind of political issue that has a lot of force exerted on it by domestic U.S. politics. Um, 
we can't get into all of that now, but I'm just curious for kind of our listeners who I think are predominantly like American listeners. Um, what do you think is important for Americans to know and think who are um, yeah. interested or committed in to peace in this conflict? Well, it's, it's a difficult message, but I have to tell it. Americans are fully complicit in what's happening. They are not only allowing it to happen, they are participating in its happening. I listen to Israeli uh, TV in Hebrew, and when this happened, they didn't expect the world to allow them more than two, three, maybe four weeks, which is why they went in with a right. lot of bombardment. They figured that the world would order them to stop. Instead, they heard from the Americans, no, don't stop, do whatever you want. We give you the green light. They ran out of ammunition because they were dropping so many bombs. They ran out of ammunition after three weeks. And the U.S. says, don't worry, we'll give you more. More ammunition, more bombs. We'll even circumvent the Congress and send them directly to you. And when the United Nations wanted to have a ceasefire, the U.S. vetoed it. And the U.S. has been, and, and, and when they started lying outright about what's happening, uh, the U.S. president came and supported their lies, whether it's about the rapes or the beheaded babies or the burnt babies or the command centers supposedly under the hospital mm -hmm. uh, or many other outright lies that have been disproven and then President Biden says, oh, that's true. I saw the beheaded babies myself. My own information say there's a command center under the Shifa hospital. Uh, our own information says that uh, Al-Ahli hospital was probably hit by a, uh, a misfired missile rather than uh, Israeli bombardment. Uh, and, and that gave that gave Israel an umbrella. More so than money and weapons, the United States has given Israel cover, an umbrella that you don't have to worry about international law, you don't have to worry about the International Court of Justice, you don't have to worry about the United Nations intervening. We will protect you. We will give you the green light. You can have as much time as you want. You can try to destroy Hamas even without having any other plan. Uh, we agree with you, with your goal that you want to create a new reality without uh, the participation of uh, Hamas in any way. And so Israeli says, okay, we can do whatever we want. I'm trying to address your question. What can Americans do? And I'm saying that Americans are part of the problem now. They need to become part of the solution, or at a minimum, they need to stay out of it mm -hmm. and, and allow force Israel to deal with the reality of international law, the reality of public opinion, the reality of living and needing to live with Palestinians in the same country. So far, they don't feel they need to because the United States will allow them to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. The United States will allow them to get away with apartheid, to get away with genocide, to get away with oppression, to get away with constant occupation, and not have to pay a price for it. In fact, to be reimbursed for whatever it costs them to do those things. Uh, this is really horrible, and, and it needs to come to a stop. Yeah, you talked about reality there, and I feel like reality has come up a lot throughout the conversation. Yes. Um, I appreciate you being willing to say that and speak those hard truths. Um, about the reality of American complicity in this conflict, about the reality of what Israel-Palestine is today and what 
the political solutions need to be to address the roots of that conflict. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about those things today, Jonathan. Thank you, and I pray that we will be able to talk about more pleasant things. Because ultimately, a peace needs to be a victory for both sides. War is never the answer. Violence is never the answer or the solution. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.